I'm Audra. And I'm Sadie. And we are former English lit majors and sisters who miss reading and discussing literature with fellow lit nerds. And we created this podcast to discuss literature fueled by libations. So pick your poison and join us each week to discuss all the queries and views unearthed in great books. And support your local bookstore. Hi, Sadie. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Good. I'm so excited for our initial podcast. This is a little scary, but exciting too. So let's get into it, I guess. Um, Do you want to lead us off with a summary of our first podcast book, Circe? Yes. So today we are discussing the book Circe. This book was written by Madeline Miller and was published in April of 2018 by Little Brand and Company. This is Ms. Miller's second novel, which is, I think, a stunning follow-up to her first uh, first novel, A Song of Achilles. Um, Circe tells the story of a nymph goddess of the same name, daughter to the titan Helios. Despite her lineage, Circe is an outcast among her family, lacking in the power of her father and the beauty of her mother. As she seeks for her place in the world and companionship, she discovers a power far more true to her, the power of witchcraft. The new power is enough to strike fear in the gods themselves, and she is exiled. Her story spans thousands of years as she straddles the world of gods and mortals, forced to make decisions that will place her on one side or the other. So in this episode specifically, we're going to be talking about chapters 1 through 17, and as a quick recap, if it's been a while since you've read the book, Circe, searching for the connection and companionship that she fails to receive from her family, finds her power instead. With it, she transforms the world around her, transforming men into gods and gods into monsters. Threatened by her power, Circe is exiled to... And welcome to the first time we're going to be saying a word incorrectly. Yeah, one of many, I'm sure. (laughs) A.I.? I don't know. Yeah, that sounds good. Sounds good. Let's go with it. A.I.E. Okay. Where her power grows over the course of hundreds of years. In that time, she becomes witness to the full scope of humanity from its most beautiful moments to the most treacherous and encounters many familiar figures in Greek myth, including Hermes, Daedalus, Daedalus? Yep. Going with it. (laughs) Icarus. I think we just need to be confident in what we say, and then everyone will believe that we're saying it correctly. Okay. Okay. So... Daedalus, mm-hmm. Icarus, Medea, and Jason, and finally Odysseus, the best of the Greeks. Aye. Great description. Thank you, Sadie. Thank you. Um, and if it wasn't evident from our intro, we also added to uh, our podcast, we are fueled by various libations, whatever we have so chosen that evening. So uh, Sadie, why don't you tell us what you're drinking this evening? So I decided to go with a beer, which is a little out of the norm for me. Um, I'm not usually a beer fan, but this year I have finally found a beer that I like, and it's Hazy IPAs. I'm New England all the way, and today I'm drinking Captain Lawrence Brewing Company Citra Dreams, which is like a really nice, juicy, dry-hopped IPA. I love it. Lovely. Great description there. All right. Well, I picked um, a cab that I've had before. It's called True Myth out of Paso Robles. Um, just really like it. It's it's dark and rich, but not not too heavy. Um, and I kind of just grabbed it for the bottle. I mean, no no one else can see but Sadie, but <laughs> oh it's got gosh. a figure of a woman on it with some pretty butterflies coming up. And I don't know, just seemed a little seemed apropos for the book. And so, anyways, that's what I'm drinking. I definitely judge my wine based off of the bottle. Oh, I'm all about aesthetics. Sucker for packaging. Sucker for aesthetics. So yeah, all for it. And it, but it tastes, it's great. It's great. 
That's always a um, Yeah. So, Sadie, you picked our book for our first podcast. Um, I had read it before as well, but you kind of were the one that had suggested this. So why don't you tell me, tell me why? Why did you pick Cersei for our podcast? I really loved this book the first time that I read it. And I remember when I read it, I didn't really have any friends who were reading it at the same time. I didn't have anybody to talk about it with. And there's just so much in this book that is ripe Mm -hmm. to talk about, especially, I think, specifically between two female-identifying people, two women. Mm -hmm. Um, There was just a lot for us, I feel like, to discuss, especially as two women who are in really different points of our lives. Um, mm, I, yes. I'm unmarried. I don't have any kids. I'm just kind of living my life. I'm in a loving relationship, but I am definitely a 26-year-old woman. And then, you know, you, on the other hand, you're like in a very different place in your life and have a lot I'm more. I'm not 26. <laughs> you're not 26. We don't need to talk about age, but. No, we don't need to, but I'm not 26. Uh, not married, 26. two children, mm-hmm. two young children. Um, so yeah, we're, we're at different points, but, uh, you know, I think there's, there's things that pull us both in and pull anyone in. I mean, this isn't a book just for women. (laughs) True. There's a lot to learn on either side, but I think that our respective experiences, I think can make a lot of the discussions that we might have a lot more interesting and fruitful. I agree. Um, All right. Well, let's get started. So like Sadie said, uh, for our first podcast, we're talking about chapters one through 17. And Sadie gave a lovely um, kind of synopsis of of what overall occurs in those chapters. Um, So I loved, I've always really been interested in mythology, Roman mythology, Greek mythology, Native American, African. Like, I, I just love the idea of mythos and how that tells us about our origins and human nature and and all of that. And so I really mm-hmm. liked, you know, I think I had definitely read more about the more Olympian gods, so Zeus and Hera and Aphrodite, and, you know, they all play a, a prominent role in, in the story, but um, Circe's is from a Titan god, from Helios, god of the sun and mightiest of the Titans. And I think it's so interesting because he's he's seen as so powerful. Um, and so even though the Titans are kind of kicked out of power by, by Zeus and the other Olympians, they still maintain, maintain this sense of power, maintain this sense of, of threat too, as well to the Olympians. That's always kind of hanging hanging in the book of, they're allowed to survive some of them and, and they're allowed to keep power and to be mighty, but only to a point. Right. And that's kind of always hanging over there. And I think that that hangs on Cersei a lot too. And, and right off the bat, you know, she's kind of, it talks about, you know, her being born and, and how she's not quite what was expected. Um, hmm. You know, and, and she isn't, isn't seen as, as much and kind of her, her place is going to be to grow up and maybe get married to someone. And that's what you do, right? As a woman, yeah. you grow up and you get married. Yeah. And it's always going to be dictated, right, by the men. So it doesn't matter what even Cersei's mother wants for her or what kind of match she wants for her. It's always going to be dictated by, you know, her father, by Helios. And, you know, what you were saying earlier about how the this kind of, like, agreement and peace among the Olympians and the Titans, it's always just kind of right over, right on the edge of tipping over mm-hmm. into a bigger battle. And I think that... Um, 
Hermes in a conversation with Cersei in the book describes it really well. He's, he says watching like an argument between Helios and Zeus is like watching two volcanoes, like and one of them's going to erupt or might erupt at any point, which is really interesting. Um, but the way that Cersei as a goddess fits into fits into that is really interesting because she as a goddess is much different than anything we see from any of the Olympians. Yeah, and there's there's great foreshadowing to it. I mean, you know, just when she's born, uh, her mother's not quite happy that she's had a girl because that doesn't necessarily grant her um, favor or, or more power because it's a girl. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, Helios, it says, you know, didn't mind his daughters were sweet-tempered and golden and men and gods paid dearly for the chance to breed from their blood. Um, and so he says, all right, she'll make a fair match. And her mother wants to know how fair, maybe there's consolation if she can get something else out of it to kind of trade her for, basically. Yeah. But uh, she's not quite the beauty that her sister is. Cersei has one more sister, and then she ends up having two other brothers. And you think, well, I think she can just have a prince. Um, and the idea of her being married to a mortal is is repulsive to, to her mother. You know, that doesn't mean as much. And so I just think it's interesting if she would have been prettier or seemed to be more enticing, you know, she could have taken a whole different path. But yeah, the fact that she's not seen as pretty, her voice they describe isn't as pleasing as those of her sisters. It actually sounds more like a mortal's voice. And all of those physical attributes kind of set her on this path to, to finding her own power, her own, you know, versus having being chosen and given to another god. Uh, mm-hmm. She's, she's kind of doomed to, to figure it out for herself. Yeah, and part of that is just out of the fact that, like, her family refuses to share things with her, right? So mm-hmm. um, the moment that she actually learns that her voice, you know, isn't screeching, it's just mortal, she doesn't find that out until she's already been exiled and she hears it from Hermes. And mm-hmm. then and that's, like, completely life-changing for her, right? Like, a half-hour conversation with Hermes answers a question she's had about herself her entire life, which is thousands of years. And then also, you know, another thing she has to discover for herself is her power, the power of witchcraft, which we find out, you know, runs in her family. And none of them have shared this information with her because it was something she had to do on her own. Yeah. And I think I think right away, kind of the big um, propulsion point for her is is when she meets Prometheus. Um, So Mm -hmm. just a reminder, if everyone's not up on Prometheus, uh, he's one of the Olympians that gave uh, fire to mortals, um, which kind of prompted them to be able to advance and and have power and think. And um, so he was punished by that, punished for that, pardon me, by Zeus. Um, He ended up being chained to a a rock and had a vulture, I think, eat out his liver. An eagle, that's right, that's right. He had an eagle tear out and eat his liver and then it would grow back because God's heal. And then it would happen again. So he was doomed to this eternal torture for, for helping mortals. So in, in Circe, in the book, um, Prometheus, he kind of goes on this tour of torture. So he's kind of toured around so that all the gods, Titans and Olympians, can, can see him suffer for this egregious crime he committed. And he, he goes to Helios's palace, and he's hung from chains, and a fury whips him, and um, Circe's present for all this and and she has a completely different reaction than everyone else and she's intrigued by him and she's intrigued about mortals and wants wants to know all about it um and i i love it she 
everyone leaves and he's hanging there and he's bleeding his golden god blood and and she goes up to him and and tries to help him she brings him something to drink and Mm. she wants to know what mortals are like and i just love this this passage she she says will you tell me what is a mortal like and he says there's no single answer they are each different the only thing they share is death you know the word i know it but i do not understand no god can their bodies crumble and pass into earth their souls turn to cold smoke and fly to the underworld there they eat nothing and drink nothing and feel no warmth everything they reach for slips from their grasp and she says how do they bear it and he says as best they can Hmm. and i feel like this gets brought up a lot in throughout the story and this is really kind of her her prompting you know and, and she doesn't speak to him much more than that and she has to go and when she's leaving she says, you will be well. And he says, well enough. And just how he handles his torture, his fate, you know, and she finds out later he knew that all this would happen. He has yeah. the gift of prophecy, but but did it anyway. And and it's not necessarily, I think, a love for mortals that he had, but just a, an appreciation, a, a curiosity. And I think that maybe turns yeah. into that kind of love. And, and I think she goes the same path. And I think that part of the book and her meeting Prometheus was really this awakening for her and that's where all this started yeah and I think he's a kindred spirit for her as well because you know one thing that I think makes these Greek gods so different from you know this western portrait of God that we have I think um really an Abrahamic God that most people think of is the fact that they are so driven specifically by their emotions. They're, you know, they're petty, they're jealous. They, Mm -hmm. um, feel all of these things and then they, they lash out. Um, but I think that with Circe and Prometheus, they both have a certain level of empathy that the other gods don't really seem to have. And you can tell that by just when she, watches him in pain. She says that even though she'd never really felt any pain, physical pain in her life, she felt aching when she was watching him being tortured. And Prometheus, I think, in a way, feels that same kind of empathy and care and curiosity for the way that mortals face their existence. And he he's kind of the first person to ever show her that that's possible. Yes, exactly. He gives her another path that she can choose to go down, or at least maybe if she doesn't see it as a path, there's there's a door opening, right? Mm-hmm. Like she sees some other options than maybe what she what she's been um, kind of imprisoned in in this palace of Helios, um, you know. And she has she has a sister. Um, I'm gonna let Sadie say the name when we get to it. And then she has two brothers, <laughs> per- Perseus and uh, Pacifier. Thank you. That sounds perfect. Um, and Aetes, right, mm-hmm. is her other brother. And, and she's not close with her sister, Persephone, <laughs> or her brother, Perseus. They seem to be attached, which you learn more about later. But um, she, she grows close to her younger brother, Aetes, and, and, and looks to him as a purpose. She takes care of him. She, you know, they play together. They explore together. And then, and then he leaves. He goes and gets his own kingdom, and his sister is married off to, to King Minos, um, who mm-hmm. you might recognize from the story of the centaur and the labyrinth. Um, and her brother Perseus goes off, gets his own kingdom as well, and she's left alone. She's, she's not married off. She doesn't really know what, what her path is. And then she sees a ship. 
and that's where she, you know, really interacts with her first first mortal, Glaucos. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just a humble fisherman, and and she falls in love. She thinks she falls in love with him, but I think she falls in love with the idea of him. Right? He's this mortal, yeah. and he has mortal concerns, and he and he's overwhelmed by her. He's you know treats her as a goddess and bows to her and is just in awe of her uh until he starts to learn her real power right he gets yeah he gets a little caught off guard when he learns how old she is yeah um so she instantly backtracks yeah and that's that's so sad to me that part that part just makes me sad because it it feels very much that even though she's thousands of years old at this point right her her maturity is still just determined by her experience in the world, right? Mm-hmm. So this this relationship that she has with Glaucus and, you know, this, oh, he's paying attention to me. He appreciates me. And then something she says kind of puts him off balance. She's so quick to change the subject or to make him feel more comfortable. She's quick and to, to minimize herself. To minimize herself, yeah, mm-hmm. and that just feels so familiar. <laughs> like, luckily, yeah, it touches a nerve, right? Like, yeah. I'm not. A, I mean, I'm. I've certainly done that in many situations. Oh, well, okay, yeah. dumb yourself down, change the story, don't be threatening. We've been don't let your power to. out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's familiar for a lot of people just within their first relationships, right? Because. I think I think it's more pertinent for the female experience maybe but I also feel like anybody who's kind of starstruck doughy-eyed about their first the first person that really notices them I think I think everybody kind of does that but it's just it's sad how quick she is to do it when we know that she's this incredible powerful goddess who even though she's not as powerful as some of the other gods, her wealth of experience is impressive. Sure, yeah. Um, and, and he really, you know, he sets that off. She wants to make him a god. She wants to be able to be with him and, and have them both be on the same playing field, so to speak. And um, she hears that there's flowers that can, you know, transform someone that's immortal into a god. and. Um, she tries to to get instruction on how to do that from her grandmother, who who refuses. That's not something that you do. It's kind of this sin, for lack of a better word. But mm-hmm. but she does it, not even realizing that it's not necessarily the flowers. It's it's her power that's in her, and it's being awakened. And she kind of intuitively knows how to use these flowers to to change him, and he becomes a god. And instead of him um, looking at her as she wants him to yeah he's so overwhelmed and obsessed with his new power and how powerful he is and they all embrace him because oh this happened this was supposed to happen this was a sign from the gods well, and he no one really the, questions yeah he right gets he gets all, all the, the credit, credit. <laughs> she even she even tries to confess and no one believes her she tries to tell them that she did it and they don't even believe her she's she's so inconsequential in their eyes yeah that they don't even believe her when she tells the truth and you know but of course when you, you think that if you just change something or do something, someone will love you that doesn't. Never happens. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't, and he falls in love with a, a nymph. Skila. That's what we'll say her name is. Skila. Skila is good. Way. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Um, and so then, you know, like other situations that are unfortunately familiar, you think, oh, well, if we just get that sea nymph out of the picture, he'll fall <laughs> back in love with me. That never works either. Um, so she 
uses this power that she's now starting to realize is hers Mm -hmm. and transforms Skeela into a horrible, what, like seven-headed dragon monster. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Yeah, so here's her power, right? And she's used it for, she's kind of had both intentions. She's had this Mm -hmm. intent of, you know, for love and to help and, and it's good, you know, intentions. And then she's used it to do some not so good. And I just love that right off the bat, she's, she's gray. She's not black. She's not white. She's this gray and she's, yeah. she has good intentions, but she also has selfish intentions and immature ones. You know, she's yeah. not all knowing just because she has all this power. And, and I, I love that duality, um, that Madeline Miller attributes to these gods. I just think it's so much more yeah. interesting. And I think what's interesting about Cersei and the way that she, um, deals with this power that she finds in herself is that she actually tries to accept responsibility, I feel like, throughout it, or she at least assumes guilt Mm -hmm. for it. Um, After this happens, you know, she gets exiled to the island, and eventually she hears, you know, what Skeela's been up to. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. she finds out that she, you know, has set herself up above water, um, in a strait so that she can purposely um, kill sailors that are forced to sail by to avoid other disasters. And she realizes that she, you know, inadvertently is not only responsible for, you know, Skeela's transformation, she's also responsible in some way to for these deaths and she doesn't find it funny. And, you know, the gods will laugh about it and they won't care necessarily because these are just mere mortals, just random sailors. But she really bears the brunt of that weight um, pretty heavily. And I think that that's something that sets her apart from the other gods as well. Yeah, exactly. I I totally agree. Um, Yeah, so she gets banished to the island of Aetis because it's discovered that um, Circe and her sister and her two brothers are, are witches. Um, and they learned of this far sooner than she did. She kind of learns about it from them. They tell her, what took you so long? Mm-hmm. You're a witch, you know, and the transformations that you've already performed are, are evident of that. Um, and so that's not good. That's threatening to Zeus, right? To now have these four offspring of a very powerful Titan god be, be witches. That's scary. Power is scary. Um, so kind of the concession Helios makes is, um, you know, they're all running their own kingdoms, they're not a threat, and here this one that did these horrible transformations, she's going to be banished to this island. She's exiled, she won't ever leave, she's no threat to you, mm-hmm. and and that's where she is. And and it's funny because, of course, they, they think it's this punishment of a sort, but that's really where she becomes who she is. And she, yeah. and I love that it's not this instant snap of your fingers, oh, now that I've been told I'm this witch and I have this power, I, I get it. I understand it all. She's really got to figure it out, and she she does. She has lots of trial and error and grows the plants and what works and what doesn't work, and you know, but she does it all all, all alone. Um, and, and I love the passage. She says, "Day by day, the island bloomed. My garden climbed the walls of my house, breathed its scent through my windows. I left the shutters open by then. I did what I liked. If you had asked me, I would have said I was happy. Yeah. And I love that she says it that way. You know, if someone asked her, she'd say she was happy. Not quite the same thing as her saying, I'm happy. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, chapter seven, that's 
really when she goes to the island and she goes through this whole transformation of honing her craft in that chapter. And when the chapter first starts and she first is on this island and she's left alone, she's kind of like a child. She's scared of the dark. She's Mm -hmm. watching the shadows in the rooms. She's scared to go into the woods. And then at some point, you know, I think it's only like a day or something, but she she just kind of accepts that this is her island now and she sets out to make it hers. And it does take a lot of trial and error for her, but it's something that you, you really see her just go through this big transformation and all by herself. She's like the only one in the chapter, really. And it's fun watching her go from kind of this meek child. And then at the end, she's basically saying, come at me. Like, where's um, the challenge to me and my power? Right. Well, and she takes Hermes as a, as a lover. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, Hermes, you know, he's kind of a, uh, he's got lots of roles in, in mythology, but he's also known as kind of a trickster and he does things to amuse himself. And he visits Circe on her island to, to see what the fuss is about. Who's this? you know, Titan witch that's been banished and mm-hmm. who made this great monster and and this mortal into a god and, and he sees her and they kind of have this repertoire and and she holds her own and takes him as a lover and, and decides to, you know, not necessarily be be used by gods anymore. Yeah. Maybe she can do some of her own using, you know, use him for companionship when she wants, use him for physical pleasure use him to get news of things out in the world because even you know she's exiled how else is she supposed to know and and I love that too she you know it's not necessarily everything she does is maybe the best thing but she's she's gonna do the using she's gonna and it's on her own terms mm -hmm. it's it's the Mm -hmm. first relationship that we really see her take ownership of on her own terms and she gets to decide what she's comfortable with and what she's not comfortable with and you know, it's obviously not a very um, uh, <laughs> emotionally fulfilling relationship by any means. She's certainly shielding most of her thoughts and feelings from him. But I thought that her relationship with Hermes is such an interesting like, stepping stone for her um, because I think she's finally getting the confidence to know that she, just as much as anybody, could be a lover to like a beautiful golden god the Olympian Tower, even though she's this exiled goddess that for most people would come off quite human. Sure. And and he he's intrigued by her too. She kind of recognizes yeah. what what uh, what her draw is and and then of course once you start to maybe recognize some power or you're seen with some power, someone maybe comes along and tries to knock you off that pedestal. You know, mm-hmm. so then she she's on this beautiful island and ships come and a, a ship comes and it's full of men who've been out to Ugh. sea for a very long time and you know this is definitely a it's a hard part of the book but I think so interesting um you know the other parts that I read about Circe is from the Odyssey and in the Odyssey you learn that you know Odysseus him and his men come upon her island and she's known as this witch that transforms men who or men who come to her island into pigs and mm. that she's this evil witch that does this that's kind of what's what's said about it but in in Madeline Miller Circe what happens is she's you know welcomes these men to her island she gives them food she gives them drinks she lets them stay in her home she's happy to have some company she's happy to help they they seem to appreciate her and thank you goddess and all this and then they 
you know, once they've satiated themselves, they start to look around and, oh, look at all these things she has. I mean, she even though she's in exile, she's yeah. not living like a pauper. She's living like a goddess. And, and they realize she's alone and she may be a goddess, but she's a woman alone. So yeah. it doesn't matter. You're vulnerable. Well, I mean, I you know, that chapter, um, it's 14, chapter 14, that that happens. And it's so sadly, like, foreshadowed. So, like, earlier in the chapter, she gets sent a, um, like, a nymph to come and live with her. as kind of like a punishment for the nymph. And Hermes visits her, and, you know, she talks about how she doesn't want this nymph there with her. And Hermes just says, you know, you should take her, take them into your bed. And she said, no, they'd, you know, they'd run screaming. They don't want to do that. And... He said, well, they always do, but they are terrible at getting away. And like that idea of just kind of like, it doesn't matter what they want. Like mm-hmm. it, they still, people will still take it from them. Um, it's really no dif- different for Cersei, unfortunately. And she's still overpowered by them. And it's, it's heartbreaking. That's a really hard chapter. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's definitely a, a hard triggering chapter, you know, and she she I I think how Madeline Miller writes it uh, from from Cersei's thoughts as, you know, as she's being attacked, as she's being raped is yeah. is so poignant, you know. She's she's a very aware of what's happening and she has all this power inside of her but can't do anything. Yeah. She doesn't speak. She she just can't do anything. There's this one part where she says I am only a nymph after all, for nothing is more common among us than this. Mm. That just, I mean, what's more common to a woman than like being sexually assaulted among women or catcalled or any, like every woman has had powerless. Yeah, or feeling powerless. Mm -hmm. There's, Mm -hmm. whether that's power within, a relationship or from strangers in this situation that are taking advantage of her and assaulting her. It's something that I think every woman or any person of kind of lower status in society can relate to, sadly. Yeah, I agree. And it's definitely not easy to read. Um, but she just embraces it head on. She, I think it's so well told and, um, uh, affecting um and well, i and i yeah yeah I, I appreciate how so that so that happens to cersei um and while she in a sense then uses her power going forward so now she's prepared right so next time a ship comes she of course welcomes them in she gives them every opportunity to not attack her yeah um but she has is prepared if they do she has already in the drinks and food that she's offered to them there's there's magic in that and if they go to attack her she says words and they transform into pigs well it's the same story every single Mm -hmm. time they ask the same questions as the first group did oh is there a man here an uncle Mm -hmm. is there anybody here every option yep she gives them every opportunity and and when they go to to attack her to take advantage of her or to hurt her she then turns them into pigs but now she's, you know, in, in the Odyssey, she's just this witch that evilly turns men into pigs. And, you know, I, I just yeah. think it's such an obvious backstory of why that would happen. Um, you know, and, yeah. and a sad one, but but an obvious one. And so that's how she kind of gets that that reputation. And um, 
And that's kind of her life for a while. Yeah. Yeah. I found it interesting, too, when she transforms them into pigs. So, like, the the question of how much she controls what things transform into is brought up when she first transforms Skeela, for example. You know, Mm -hmm. she convinces herself that she only transformed her into what she already kind of was. But... You know, then Aedes kind of pushes back on that and says, like, oh, well, I don't think it's coincidence that she turned into quite the monster as you turned her into. So it's kind of a question when she turns them into pigs and, you know, the chapter ends so powerfully on I did kill pigs that night after all. Mm -hmm. You know, how much of it is just her turning them into what she views them as versus what they are? I mean men are pigs like in this scenario literally like no wonder we say that yeah i mean it it all comes from somewhere and she and you know it's important to note that they they know that their men transformed into pigs so it's this extra torture of she hasn't transformed them into pigs that don't know about their existence or what they are they they do and they're terrified so now they've they're living with that terror that they inflicted on her and but and and I love how it's written because it's it doesn't make what happened before go away. It doesn't transform mm-hmm. her into now just this evil witch, but it doesn't take her back to just this pure person either. You know, it's just another layer to her story. It's another layer to her power cuz now yeah. she has this I mean that doesn't that doesn't go away. It's always a part of you and and it's something that she doesn't ever really escape from. Yeah. And you know, while I don't personally condone anybody turning humans into pigs although that would be fun to watch um it's powerful watching um truly a victim of a pretty horrific circumstance take down her perpetrators and also just assume power and control in that relationship like going forward like she's no longer passive right you know she's Mm -hmm. during the assault she's forced to be kind of passive as this horrible thing happens to her but then after she's able to take on this this assertive role and i think that's something that a lot of people wish that they could do well and she's kind of forced to do this in in a way because yeah. she, she she brings up you know i should i should tell my father i should tell helios he'll be so angry that these people would dare to hurt his daughter and then it's like no no, he won't. You know, I'm exiled. I'm not cared for. I'm not cared about. She can't go to, you know, quote, proper channels. She yeah, she feels like this is up. her only. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and how, unfortunately, much does that parallel our lives? You know, you think yeah. it would be just as easy as, as reporting something, as telling authorities, as using all of the things that we have available, supposedly, in, in our different systems, our legal systems. And unfortunately, that's that's not necessarily something that everybody has access to that works out for everybody that that works as it should in in both sides and so she kind of has to go go this route i mean how else is she she has to live on this island she's exiled to it she can't leave it yeah um i mean actually scratch that she could have and she brings that up a couple times that she could have cast a spell to make it so that her island instead of looking like this lush beautiful respite looks just like a crag of rocks well, so she, yeah, she I mean, does she bring that up. She clearly wants, I think, to like do this to these people. But again, like you said, she gives them every opportunity to prove her wrong. And mm-hmm. finally, she is kind of proven wrong. 
when Odysseus shows up. Yes. Oh, Odysseus. I love when he, I love how Madeline Miller writes about Odysseus, <laughs> too, too. Because, again, she, she, I mean, and as all good literature should, right? It shouldn't be just these common tropes of characters. They should have all sorts of facets to them and, and gray areas. And, you mm-hmm. know, they're not just one-sided. And, and that's Odysseus, you know? And I think the Odyssey, and obviously just in how, what kind of writing it is, you, you can't get into all of that. But I love how she opens him up and and presents him as, yeah, he's incredibly smart and this master strategist and a great leader, but yeah. he's also kind of ruthless and mm-hmm. and hungry for this power. And, and Cersei kind of meets her match in Odysseus. He, he kind of realized, yes, mentally for sure. Um, he, he's well aware of her by this time. She's, she's known as this goddess on this island and, or this witch rather that will turn men into pigs and has a whole trove of them along with her alluring nymphs. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's, he's ready for her. He doesn't drink the wine she offers. He doesn't, he doesn't eat the food. And he's well aware of what's happening. And I love their, their back and forth. It's, yeah. it's just so great. Well, it's great dialogue. It's, it's mm-hmm. wonderfully wit- written dialogue. It's just so fun to read. And I just can almost picture it on screen in my head without even having actors attributed to it or something. It just plays off so well. And I love this, this game of cat and mouse that they kind of play with each other, where he's very, very specific about his words and what he lets slip to let her know that he knows who she is and when the mm-hmm. game is up, kind of. But there's so much, I think because of that, she has so much respect for him. Um, but I just love specifically how clever he is and how he's very purposeful with everything that he tells her, the way that he tells her. And I love how they don't ever really like express their feelings for each other, but it's pretty clear they do have feelings for each other, even mm-hmm. with him being extremely like emotionally loyal to Penelope, his wife. Right. Well, and that's that's kind of how she... That's how he gets her to turn his men back mm-hmm. into humans. You know, she, that's what he wants. And he wants to not be turned into a pig. He wants to be saved and save his men. And so she agrees based on the fact that they're going to establish trust with one another. And, and they do that by, by going to bed to, with each other. And, and he ends up staying on her island for a good amount of time, including the men. And, and I think it's interesting. He doesn't necessarily excuse them. He doesn't excuse his men. He, I think he kind of starts to, you know, they're tired. They're, they've been at war. Um, yeah. They, you know, but, but then kind of it just is what it is. And, and we're going to live with this. And we're going to live with the fact that this happened. And this is what you did. And this is what I asked of you. And, and I think that's an interesting way to tell it. Um, that now she's living on this island with nymphs and these men that tried to attack her. And Odysseus, who's who she's kind of falling in love with. And, yeah. and I think he's kind of in love with her to a, to a degree as much as he can as someone who's, I think, more in love with, with war and strategy and, and adventure. I mean, that's really Odysseus's love. Yeah. Um, I really loved this portrayal of Odysseus, especially having so much intimate conversation with him in this book compared to the way we're seeing him portrayed in A Song of Achilles. We obviously don't have Mm -hmm. to talk too much about A Song of Achilles, but the way that he's 
kind of described by Patroclus and Achilles in that book is so different than the way we get to know him here. He's still obviously that the very smart, charismatic, kind of sly fox that he is, mm-hmm. but they don't like him for those things, right? Because they feel like so principled in their own story. But in the conversations that he has with Cersei, you really see that a lot of the reasons that he's like that is because he knows that to be like a good leader or to get things done that he knows need to get done, he can't maintain that kind of moral purity, which mm-hmm. is a hard thing to deal with, but I think makes him is, is honest and makes him really interesting as a character. Yeah, I agree. And a good a good match for her. Um, and kind of a welcome, a welcome match because so prior to this, um, another, you know, famous mortal that she encounters is, uh, I can't say it right. Doubt. Daedalus? Daedalus. Daedalus. Okay. So Daedalus, if you're not familiar, he's, um, he's famous for the story of Daedalus and Icarus. So he, he's kind of, um, under the rule of Cersei's sister, Persephone. Pacify, thank you. Um, and he is is credited with kind of trapping, creating the labyrinth and trapping the the Minotaur in the labyrinth that Jason eventually kills, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and also he escapes from Pacify by building wings for himself and his son so that they can they can fly away to Egypt and escape. Um, but his son Icarus flies flies too close to the sun and his wings mm-hmm. melt and and he dies. So I know that that's kind yeah. of the most well-known story of Daedalus, Daedalus. but yeah. um, Hermes lets Cersei know that a ship's coming, and Hermes obviously kind of has an idea of what's up, and so the ship comes, and it's it's with Daedalus, and he has been sent by her sister to bring her back to help her sister, won't tell her, won't tell Cersei what for, what it's about, and um, she's allowed out of her exile to go do this, so she goes back with him, and of course it can't be too easy, she has to go the path back has to be where she will pass by Skyla, this mm-hmm. nymph that she's turned into this horrible monster who for however many years now has been killing everyone in her path, has been destroying ships. And so, of course, she has to face face her past, face her power, face her guilt, um, and try and save these guys on the way. And yeah. um, she, she kind of does. She tricks Skyla a little bit um, and gets to, to where her sister lives and her sister needed her help because her sister is pregnant with the Minotaur. Um, and so she has to, <laughs> such a weird story. Yeah. So then she has, she, she has to help her sister give birth to this half human, half bull that basically tries to kill Cersei as she's helping it out of the womb. Um, and she forms this bond, this friendship with Daedalus um, they, I think they both kind of have this bond over feeling trapped with their own powers. You know, they have power, but they, they can't necessarily break free with that. Daedalus is so smart and creative and creates things and he can't escape. He's got to stay for his son and find a way to get them both yeah. out. And she can't escape because she's exiled and, and they, you know, well, become just, lovers and friends. Yeah, they bec- they have so much in common, right? Because they both kind of understand what it is to be living under the thumb of Helios and um, Pacify Mm -hmm. um, because Daedalus is indebted to her. He's in servitude to her. She doesn't let him leave. And, you know, kind of 
as we were talking about before, you know, Cersei sees the full scope of like the horror of humanity when those men visit her island and assault her. But I feel like with Daedalus, she sees more so even than with Odysseus in some ways, just the beauty of humanity because she sees his relationship with his son and how devoted he is and um, the love and dedication and, and also his craftsmanship, just the stuff that he's able to create with hard work and dedication and skill that, you know, doesn't, he's not just innately born with in the way that gods are. Um, she's able to see kind of that beauty, but she also relates to him because in some ways he's tasked with the responsibility of like creating the Minotaur because he Mm -hmm. creates that, uh, contraption yeah the shell of a cow so that she can hide in it and have the bull uh, consummate her relationship with oh my gosh the the i can't find the right page but the part where pacify is like well she just gets irritated with yeah she's irritated with them like dancing around what happened and why which i think was really funny and then she's like yeah i fucked the 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 bull whatever like of course i did okay moving on anyway so now you have this monster inside of you um now we've got to take care of this problem but like um daedalus kind of takes that on as his responsibility right because he created that contraption and there's even a part where he asks cersei after you know one of their love affairs he asks her how she deals with the responsibility of having created Skyla. And she answers him the same way that Prometheus answered her. And she says, we just deal with it the way we can, even though she, that's something that she's still really battling. Um, but I loved how he was, he's kind of the first human that she has this really deep, like actual connection and they can relate to each other on like more than one level, which I think is really beautiful. And I think one of the, the, feels weird to say best things but the best thing that came out of her leaving her island and going to to help her sister wasn't even this relationship that she formed with Daedalus even though it it was it had a tremendous impact on her was was more of of the interactions that she ended up having with her sister you know her sister was not kind to her growing up they didn't have a close relationship and and before she leaves to go back to her island she kind of confronts her sister you know about why did you bring me here and kind of why are you the way you are and why did you yes. treat me the way you did and you have and I just love their interaction and her sister her sister says let me tell you a truth about Helios and all the rest they do not care if you are good they barely care if you are wicked the only thing that makes them listen is power it is not enough to be an uncle's favorite to please some god in his bed it is not enough even to be beautiful for when you go to them and kneel and say I have been good will you help me they wrinkle their brows oh sweetheart it cannot be done Oh, darling, you must learn to live with it. And have you asked Helios? You know I do nothing without his word. And she spat on the floor. They take what they want, and in return they give you only your own shackles. A thousand times I saw you squashed. I squashed you myself. And every time I thought, that is it, she is done. She will cry herself into a stone, into some croaking bird. She will leave us in good riddance. Yet always you came back the next day. They were all surprised when you showed yourself a witch, but I knew it long ago. Despite your wet mouse weeping, I saw how you would not be ground into the earth. You loathed them as I did. I think it is where our power comes from. Mm. And I think these interactions that she has with her sister, I mean, 
not to mince words, they do not now become best friends. And, you know, and I think that there's the possibility, I think, yeah. Persephone is almost open to this idea of, hey, we're these two powerful witches. Let's let's burn shit down. Like, yeah. let's let's get rid of everyone who's ever hurt us. Like, let's use our power. And and, you know, Cersei kind of draws a line in the sand of I'm not like you. We're not going to have that relationship. But I think she really takes a lot from those interactions. I think it really awakens her to what she wants to be, who she wants to be how she wants to use her power and and not that there's bad witch good witch but that she also sees hey it wasn't necessarily easy for Persephone either you know we all have shackles as she says we're all given shackles and it's by these men it's by these other gods and I think it's a matter of how how are you going to work around them I think is how Persephone looks at it versus Circe is more of how do I unfree you know how do I free myself from these shackles well, and in some ways, Cersei's lucky because she's given exile. She's given uh, mm-hmm. solitude mm-hmm. to be able to really hone her craft, to get to know herself, and to kind of exist outside of that order. But yeah. Pacifier is not given that. Like she said, she's always doing everything she does is at Helios's word. And I, I think this is such an interesting point as far as sibling relationships go as well, right? Because Cersei clearly remembers things differently than Pacifier does in some ways. Cersei remembers Pacifier always kind of participating in this or being treated better, um, mm-hmm. having it better. And sees her beauty is, I think, the reason why. I think yeah. she really attributes a lot of her um, Persephone's you know, she thinks everything was easy, and I think she attributed a lot of that to how beautiful yeah. she was, and then also thinks that Persephone had a great relationship with the brother Perseus, and then you learn that's right. not necessarily the case. It's not talked about in great detail, but definitely insinuated that that she was, um, you know, abused by yeah. Perseus, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure you can speak to that, that kind of idea of, you know, you have siblings and I'm sure you all remember things a little differently but it's all true to all of you right like yeah, it's it all is, it is all it's true, all true. It, mm-hmm. well I mean no matter how you remember it in some ways what happens doesn't really matter right because it's true to how you experience it and mm-hmm. you remember more what you feel than you do the actual events verbatim right but sure. this level of like understanding that she finally has with her sister it's like a glass wall being shattered and she can finally see what's there and she can see her sister as this full person mm-hmm. and not just this other person who's mean to her throughout her life she sees now that it wasn't so easy for her and she's also given a pretty glaring criticism about a brother that she loves so much Aedes and it's yes. when um Pacify says, Aedes has never loved a woman in his life, and he never loved you. That's a huge, like, earth-shattering thing to hear, I think, for Cersei, because Aedes, you know, was somebody that she cared for so deeply, and she felt like they had this really deep relationship, and that he did love her. And then hearing Pacify's interpretation of their relationship is... I mean, that would just kill me. (laughs) 
Well, it's, they're all awakenings, right? I mean, that's what, yeah. what's all throughout this book is all these awakenings, awakenings to her power, awakenings to, to sexuality, awakenings to, you know, other relationships, awakenings to the truth. Like it's just all these constant new doors opening, even though it seems like they're all shut around her. Yeah. And it's, I mean, should we talk about her relationship with Aedes and how that changes over time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's more prevalent, you know, in the later parts of the book. So we'll get to that in our in our next segment, in our last segment over this book. But so she, Aedes is is the youngest, right? I mean, that's mm-hmm. kind of how it's um, the lineage is is broken down in the book, and she cares for him and um, kind of takes over this almost this motherly role of him and loves him and 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 once her sister Persephone is married off to King Minos. Um, then they all kind of go their own ways. Her other brother leaves to have his kingdom, and Aedes is like, yeah, I'm out of here. I've got my own kingdom. I'm going to come into my own, get what I deserve, and leaving mm-hmm. tomorrow. See ya. I mean, it's it's written so much more eloquently than yeah. I just stated. but Well, and then, you know, he's not really active in her life for a really long time. He kind of... Um, he does talk with her a lot before she's exiled, kind of about their power and how um, it's up to her to figure it out and all of that kind of stuff. But I think after her conversation with Pacifye, she she sees this other side of how sometimes what you know as a as a kid isn't always going to match up to how people are as an adult, and that anybody knows no matter how sweet they are as a child how innocent they are as a child they can grow to be less than than ideal and you know we see that in the in the chapter where jason and medea who is aedes daughter who's a demigod and a witch herself they come to see her and they ask for her to to work a spell on them that rids them of of kind of like their guilt over her killing her brother and i think this is like chapter just just chapter 15 maybe yeah it's like chap pages like 160 something through 170 something roughly around there um but so Medea comes and and Cersei can tell that she's she's a woman of immense power, but she's kind of frivolous. She diminishes herself for Jason. She manipulates Jason to love her or to accept her as this powerful person. And then she just lets her go. And then Aedes comes at the end of the chapter and he says that you were supposed to keep her for me. Like how dare you let her go? And she says something to him where she says, um, oh, Aedia says, you have done nothing. I will have her in the end. Like, she's going to pay for killing my son, even though she's his daughter. And she says, that may be true, but I do not think she will make it easy. She is like you, Aedes, an oak to oak, and she must live with that. And so it seems must you. And this is kind of the first time, I think, where she's, kind of confronting Aedes with his own um I think she's seeing him more for who yeah. he is now but maybe who he always was you know right. she's kind of had that veil lifted 
um, when she went and saw her sister and her sister kind of threw this cold water at her about he didn't really love you he's never loved any woman and you know what he really loves is his power yeah um and so i think she kind of already had that veil lifted and now here's some confirmation right here's here's another side of the story and it's coming straight from aedes and and she kind of makes her choice you know i think she she talks about she wanted to to have him come to her island and she wanted to sit with him and talk with him and almost get this thing back that she thought was real but then it's like well it wasn't really real yeah so now i've got to deal with this new reality and here yeah. it is and and she does and she does it just so strongly she's such a strong character yeah once she sets her mind to things she's she's very good at being very clear about her stance and not showing weakness kind of in, in the mm-hmm. face of those things um something that is interesting to me with Aedes specifically is you know a part of me like agrees that he It wasn't all genuine when he was a kid, his relationship with her. But I think that there is a piece of innocence there, right? And we see kind of an innocent, kind boy who treats her well grow up to be this man who doesn't treat women well and doesn't view them well. And he kind of lets his own power corrupt him a little bit. And I'm sure. I mean, that's a big theme throughout this: is what is what does power do to you? You know, what does it do to people? And what do people do to keep it, to get it, to get more of it, to... Well, and what's yeah, the line? And, what's the line, right? Like, when are... That's the question with Cersei in some ways. Like, I think at this point, enough time has passed that it seems like if she was going to be truly corrupted by her power, we would have seen it mm-hmm. already. But why mm-hmm. is she not corrupted when all these other people that we see give, given or discovering their own powers, like, we see them corrupted and the question is, but Cersei is, why isn't she affected like that? Right. Yeah, for sure. It's a good question. I think, I think it's something she battles with throughout as well, as all these opportunities come, as all these different things she's presented with. And I think a lot of it has to do with, with what happened to her when she you know, turned Skeela into this monster. I think that had a big mm-hmm. effect on her um, and Glaucus and, and kind of... Just, being aware of consequences and being um, empathetic and and even just the first meeting she had with Prometheus. I think that is is what helped keep her not corrupt as she kind of started her awakenings with this idea of doing something for other people even though it's going to end up getting you chained to a rock with an eagle eating your liver. Yeah. You know, I mean, he used his power to help other people despite the torture he endured for eternity for it. And I think that having that be something that she's presented with at such a young, impressionable time is is kind of what set her on the path to not allow this to corrupt her to the point that it did her siblings, who are just as powerful in their own right. Yeah. And she makes clear choices, I think, when we, you know, in, in the chapter where she starts to hone her craft, you know, she talks about how she doesn't summon dragons. She doesn't do... She doesn't try to raise the dead like her siblings are. She's kind of content with just figuring out what these things will do before she focuses more on what her limits truly are. Like, mm-hmm. or what know, it can she, do for her. Yeah, because yeah, she talks about how some, you know, some of the simple things that she does is just, can I change this frog into a butterfly, or like, can mm-hmm. I, can I clear my house of insects? so they don't bug right. me <laughs> like 
it's just more innocent, I feel like, versus her trying to have a ton of control over people. But then again, like we see her at kind of ebb and flow either way, right? Because she she doesn't have any qualms about turning those men to pigs. And she, you know, well, she's motive. I think I think she's yeah. more drawn. I think she's more um, uh, motivated by uh, need mm. versus des- desire. Um, you know, for example, Odysseus comes to her to her island and she falls in love with him and and he stays for a significant period of time um, from his own desire. You know, she could easily put a spell on him and she mm. brings that up. She could easily give him something at this point to make him stay as long as she wants him to stay she she's come to to love him and his companionship and and she, she realizes it would be empty if she mm-hmm. did that but, right but yeah and she doesn't she her she doesn't want it to she wants it to be true you know and mm-hmm. her magic is true it comes from the earth it's plants and it's animals and it's it's all the elements um and she uses them to to also do true things even if they're ugly like turning men into pigs it's it's yeah. kind of these base um, desires that draw all her power and that she uses it with. Yeah. And she doesn't seem concerned, unlike, I think, her siblings um, and her parents. She doesn't, con- she doesn't seem very concerned with having other people know or care about her power, right? Yeah, it's funny. Odysseus brings it comes up later um, in the last part of the book, but you find out he communicates to someone that of all the monsters and gods and goddesses and people and creatures that he's met over his long odysseys, she's the one that he would most like to to see again, to be with again, mm-hmm. and, and that she's also the only god or goddess he's ever met that uh, seems very uninterested and disinterested in her own godliness and power. Yeah. And I think that that's such a great description of her. She's she uses it when she needs to, but she's not obsessed with it. She's not obsessed with her own power. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah, we see that, you know, when she's on the ship with Daedalus and the rest of the crew, and, you know, they all bow down and, like, try to worship her because she gets them through that situation, and she's like, you guys. And she flips her shit at I them. Was resp- <laughs> yeah, she was like, I was responsible for this. For this. Like, don't be stupid. Yeah, this monster that I saved you from is even here because of me. Like, yeah. So not, well, not I, worth it, it to worship it, me. Yeah, it goes back to, I think, what Hermes says, too, where he said that, you know, the gods don't like it when men are happy. We like it when they're mm-hmm. miserable. We create these monsters and these obstacles for them so that they pray to us more. Hmm, that's a whole can of worms. Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> open that in this podcast, but that's a whole nother discussion. Um yeah, I, I forgot about that part. That's a, it's a great point for sure. And then that's know. not her. She didn't. She didn't create this monster to, you know, instill fear in people. She didn't create it to prove her powers. She didn't create it. It, it was just kind of out of this naive love for Glaucos and thinking that she, she, mean, she didn't even mean for this to happen. It, it did, but now now she's living with that. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only moment where she really wants people to know what she can do is when she, you know, she tells her father that she's the one who did it. And I think it with with the Skyla and Glaucus. And I think at that point, it's just because she's so desperate for a consequence. Mm-hmm. Not even credit. I Like, I don't even think it's that she wants credit that's driving her at that moment. She's just like, 
can we please have some consequence to these actions, not even just her actions. She wants Glaucus to have consequences because she Mm -hmm. wants people to treat him differently because she knows it's not him, him that did it to himself, right? She wants, she just wants kind of like relief from that situation. She doesn't want yeah. to be considered. A relief and a some, reckoning. I think yeah. she wants a little bit of a reckoning, but for herself yeah. too. She's an yeah. equal opportunity. You know? <laughs> yeah. she, everyone gets their reckoning, including herself. Yeah. Yeah, but I think that's true. And I think she's, you know, she has so much power and she's very concise about when she uses it and why. And like I said, she could have, she could have put a spell on Odysseus so that he stayed and, you know, could have had this nice little quiet life with each other and instead she doesn't and eventually because he's in love with travel and adventure and you know the the discussion is that he needs to go back to his wife and his child and his homeland but I think in reality it's it's that he needs to travel he needs to be constantly moving he needs to be using his strategy and his wiles and and he leaves and she says Odysseus son of Laertes the great traveler prince of wiles and tricks and a thousand ways he showed me his scars, and in return, mm. he let me pretend that I had none. And then mm. he's gone. And it was such a great, great kind of ending to that chapter. I mean, Odysseus is never really gone. He, even though she doesn't see him again, yeah. Um, you know, he comes back, which we'll talk about in our next, in our next podcast um, recording. But it's just a great, I think it was just a great passage. I love how she lets him go. It's not easily... Um, and she's very clear yeah. about that, and she sees it coming. But that and that takes power too. It does it takes a lot of restraint and power to to close a door, to let someone go, to not use power necessarily to make something happen. Yeah, and she, you know, it takes a lot of respect for like personal autonomy, because mm-hmm. I she I think through her time on the island and everything tends to really appreciate her personal autonomy and being able to do the things that she likes on her schedule. And I think she realizes that that's not something she can force on anybody else, especially not somebody she loves or respects. Um, but it's right, interesting. Right, and not, not changing them. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's obviously interesting after she finally experiences what could be considered real companionship, um, what she decides to do when he's gone. And I think that brings her into a really interesting new role that changes her in a lot of ways. Yes. Which, so I think that's a good good spot to, to leave you all hanging if you haven't read it. Maybe you can go <laughs> read the book now or finish the rest of it if you've started. Um, we'll be reading um, from chapters or discussing chapters 18 on in our next podcast and kind of wrapping up our thoughts on, on Cersei. Um, yeah, so we will talk to you talk at you all next (laughs) week i hope you all enjoyed our our podcast um if you can please give us a rating i think you can click on stars or give a review and even if you hated it and have all these critiques to give us feel free but maybe also do the five stars so do the five stars but then write whatever you want to us in your review five stars write whatever you want and maybe we'll even read it on the podcast so you can hear your words read to you as you roast us but please yeah. don't roast us i hope you like it just give us the five right. stars <laughs> well thanks everyone for joining us in this little experiment um it's been fun so we will talk at you all next week <laughs>